Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We've been in the Gospel of Luke now for two and a half years. I, I was listening to John MacArthur earlier this week, the same area of the text, and he started off, we've been in Luke eight years, so I'm moving along lickety-split. This is actually, I think, the 97th message in Luke so far. And this text, verses 31 through 34 of Luke 18, serves as a transition, brings closure to the section before, and transition to what lies ahead. And if you want to zoom back, look at a bird's eye view of Luke, if you'll remember, the first two chapters contain the birth announcement and narrative for both John the Baptist and Jesus. Chapter 3 focuses on the ministry of John the Baptist, and then starting in chapter 4, Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. And it's typified by him going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, healing the sick and preaching the news of the kingdom. And then in chapter 9, Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, brings Peter, James, and John. And from that point descending, he is focused and fixed and set his face to Jerusalem. And from, from chapter 9... Verse 31, 51, in that range, to now has been the journey to Jerusalem, by far the largest section of Luke's gospel. And so we've been, probably for the last year or more, in this journey to Jerusalem as Jesus goes and he's teaching his disciples and preparing them. Our text this morning marks the end, or the beginning of the end of the journey. I'd like to read it, and then we'll take a look at it. Luke 18, 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. Lord God, as we look at this text, the clearest yet in Luke of the looming cross, and we behold Jesus' confidence, courageous bravery, his firm resolution and commitment to serve you and suffer to the end, Lord, we pray that we would see his glory, and that seeing the glory of the Son of God, we might be changed. So, Lord, give the increase from your word. Now may the meditation of my heart and the words of my lips be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may not have noticed, but in Luke's gospel, two threads have been weaving. The first is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. If you'll turn back to chapter 9, the first mention of Jesus going to Jerusalem is when Jesus is up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. And we're told what Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about in verse 31 of chapter 9. They appeared in glory and spoke about his departure, or literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So up until this point, Jesus has been ministering in and around Galilee. Now, for the first time, we've mentioned Jerusalem. And he comes down from the mountain, and then in verse 51, we get this statement, which is a shift in the narrative. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face 
to go to Jerusalem. And in case we didn't get it the first time, in verse 53, two verses later, Luke repeats it. The people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And as we keep reading, this journey narrative is emphasized. Verse 57, as they were going along. Chapter 10, verse 38, now as they went on their way, and we're assumed to know their way to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 22, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. 33 of chapter 13, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then most recently for us in Luke 17, 11, on the way to Jerusalem. So you, you can't miss it. Sometimes by going this slowly, you can forget it, but we're, we're heading to Jerusalem. And so when Luke inserts this text, which crystallizes and culminates and draws that together, it's, it's intentionally placed here to mark a division in the text. There's also another thread, though, that's run through Luke, and they haven't been the same thread. We're so accustomed. We know the, the way the story ends. We know the resolution of the matter. But Jesus' statements of going to Jerusalem don't include implicit or explicit, I mean, um, statements of his death and suffering. But Jesus has, starting in chapter 9, begun speaking plainly about his passion. And so in 9.22, he tells the disciples plainly, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then a little later in 9.44-45, and you get the impression that Jesus is really trying to get them to understand this. And they're thick-headed, they're dull, slow of hearing. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then again, most recently in chapter 17, first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So we've had a thread of going to Jerusalem and Jesus speaking more and more plainly about his sufferings, and here they're combined into one passage. And now plainly, what's been hinted at is made clear to the disciples and to the reader, why is Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem? He's setting his face to go to Jerusalem to suffer and be humiliated and mocked and die and rise again. What's also interesting is, is how this passage focuses on some of the details. In prior passages of the passing, the focus is on the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees doing these things to him. Here there's no mention of them. Maybe implicit by being handed over to the Gentiles, which assumes whoever's handing him over isn't a Gentile. But the emphasis here is on the humiliation. Notice the words. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and then they will kill him. And so the emphasis here is on the suffering and humiliation of the Son of Man. And in that sense, this closes the section we've just been looking at. Remember, we've seen that from the time that Jesus told the parable of the rich ruler in chapter 18, which ends in verse 14, and not the parable of the rich ruler, the Pharisee and the tax collector, I'm sorry, which ends in verse 14 with this proverb, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we've seen that play out first with the children who are trying to come near, the babies, literally the infants coming to Jesus. 
And the disciples, as much as they're sort of grasping Jesus' message, don't understand it fully. And so they try to keep the children away, and Jesus says, no, these, these helpless, dependent infants are perfect pictures of those who enter my kingdom. Let them come. And then this rich ruler, a moral man, a man concerned about eternal life, he turns away sorrowful. And we see played out literally the humble are exalted and those who exalt themselves are humbled. And so now Jesus speaks of his own humiliation and his own exaltation. He will be humiliated and he will rise. And so we're looking at the humiliation and exaltation of the Son of Man. And this section begins our final approach in Luke's gospel to Jerusalem. And in the coming weeks, it's almost as though Jerusalem is in view. In fact, if you just look between here, um, 1835, we're at Jericho, which is near Jerusalem. And then by the time we get to the end of chapter 19, look at 41. When he drew near and saw the city... He wept over it. And then before we finish chapter 19, Jesus will be in Jerusalem. Verse 45, he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold. And in God's happy providence, as we approach Jerusalem, will be precisely at that time of the year that some churches in their calendar um, focus on the approach to Jerusalem. And in fact, Palm Sunday this year will be the very day we read the passage where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey's back. So I would encourage you in the coming weeks as we approach Easter, Good Friday, Palm Sunday, that, that you might think these things through, read, reread this passage. It's just lining up perfectly for us. So what we're going to do is look at this passage. There's not a ton that takes place. We're going to look at it in two points and then try to draw three principles or lessons from it. And so the first point, verses 31 to 33, is Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And he's done this previously, but this is the fullest, the most plain, the clearest that he has thus spoken. Taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he'll be delivered up to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Now, Luke narrows down his audience. Up until this point, most of Jesus' teaching has been to the crowds or to the Pharisees, and usually with the other group hearing. So we've seen him go back and forth, speaking to the crowds while the Pharisees listen, or the Pharisees while the crowds listen. But here, he singles out for the first time the 12 since chapter 9. The 12 apostles have not been singled out since chapter 9, and now he chooses them, not even his disciples, but just the 12. And he tells them that he's going to Jerusalem with a purpose in mind. And the purpose is to fulfill Scripture. Jesus is clear on this point, that what he is doing is not an accident. It's, it's, it's not making it up as you go along. This was predicted long ago, and Jesus has studied his Bible. He knows what will happen to the Messiah he accepts it. He set his face resolutely and determined to head to Jerusalem. And he tells them plainly what will happen. First, his humiliation. There's six statements of what will happen to the Son of Man, which is Jesus' preferred self-designation. First, he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. 
which may not seem like a big deal to you, but for Jews, this is humiliating. Jesus' own people will not be the ones ultimately put in the death. They'll have the Romans do their dirty work. He'll be delivered over to the uncircumcised Gentiles. He'll be mocked. He'll be shamefully treated, spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And all of this takes place in Luke. In the coming weeks, we'll, we'll see this. But in, in chapter 20, verses, verse 20, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. And then in chapter 23, 1, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Um, this may be stating the obvious, but Jesus is absolutely accurate in his prediction. This is exactly what happens. And he's mocked. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Luke 22, 63. 23, 11. Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Verse 23, 36. The soldiers also mocked him. Understand there's more in the sufferings of Calvary than simply his death. There's the whole time leading up to it, the humiliation, the beatings, being stripped naked, being mocked, spit upon, shamefully treated, Luke 22, 63 to 64. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? 23, 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now they shamefully treated him. They mocked him. They spat upon him. They flogged him. And they ultimately killed him. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having breathed his last. After having breathed his last. Now everything Jesus predicts is accurate. And I want you to stop and notice he knows exactly what is in store for him as he heads to Jerusalem. There are no surprises. This wasn't an accident. This is the plan. This was the plan. And so Jesus here embodies the parable, that at the parable, the proverb, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. He will be humbled, but he will not stay dead. He will be raised. He will be raised. So there Jesus speaks plainly. We now know that he knows what he is doing, clearly. And Luke has set up this final approach to Jerusalem as we get to Jericho. But we're not only told that he said this, we're also told again about the disciples' failure to understand. We, we learn that the disciples do not and cannot understand. They do not and cannot understand. Verse 34 says it three different ways. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Two of those in parallel, they didn't understand these things, they did not grasp what was said. And then the middle one, from a slightly different angle, this saying was hidden from them. So they did not understand or comprehend these things. Now this is not new for them. Jesus is constantly in the Gospels telling his disciples things that we're told they didn't understand. We already read in, in chapter 9, verse 44 to 45, when Jesus again is telling them of his passion, and let these words sink into your ears. You get maybe some of his frustration or some of his insistence. Get this. 
The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they're afraid to ask him about this saying. Consistently, as much as they've received other parts of Jesus' teaching, the disciples do not understand this notion. And you've got, you got to understand, the, the Jewish people, even today, are looking for their Messiah. They were looking for their Messiah back in this day. And they understood the Messiah primarily in terms of his regal power, the kingdom that he would bring. Go, go read Psalm 2. That's the type of picture they have in mind. A Messiah who would set up an eternal kingdom, who would rule over the nations with Israel exalted, who would fight their enemies and ultimately turn swords to plowshares. And so whenever Jesus would speak of the suffering, humbled Messiah, they, they just didn't get it. They didn't have categories for this. It was too much for them. But not only are we told that they didn't understand these things, we're also told this saying was hidden from them. And this is kind of interesting because it suggests God's activity. In fact, if you, if you turn back to chapter 8, this theme of truth being hidden from people is first introduced there. Jesus began speaking in parables, and it's popular to say he spoke in parables to use illustrations for common everyday people. He put the cookies on the low shelf. He spoke in terms that everyone could understand. That's not the reason Jesus says that he speaks in parables. He told them the parable of the sower in chapter 8, verse 9. The disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. Why? So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And, and we studied that passage back when we looked at God's sovereign purpose in parables and understood that Jesus was both revealing truth and, as God's servant, hiding truth. And even more clearly, turn to chapter 10. This was the passage that launched us into our four-week series on election and predestination. The disciples return, the 72 return, and in verse 21, Jesus rejoices. I want you to notice what he's rejoicing in. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to you by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, or anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we've seen that there's an activity of God at work, not only opening eyes to truth, but also closing eyes to truth. And as we studied God's purpose in parables, we understood that this wasn't the capricious work of God, but rather a judgment on unbelief. And I think Luke gives us a context to help us understand why it might be that it is right and fitting of God to hide this from the disciples. Jesus is putting himself forward, telling them what he will do to most perfectly picture what he just said about those who humble themselves being exalted. And we've seen, just a few verses earlier, the disciples not get this. They want to keep the children away. They haven't fully um, wrapped their heads around this. They haven't submitted their thinking to this notion of, of glory comes from being low. The one who wants to be greatest among you must be the servant. And so in, in this text, we see why it might be fitting that God would not let them get this. They, they're already disinclined to it. The saying was hidden from them. And that's our passage. And we're not done. 
But that's it. Jesus announces in clearest possible terms he's going to Jerusalem to be shamefully treated, humiliated, mocked, killed, and to rise. And the disciples do not understand and they cannot understand. And yet from these simple verses, I think there are at least three lessons to learn from this text. Three lessons to learn from this text. First, the cross was predicted and planned. The cross was predicted and planned. I don't think I need to stress this point too much amongst you, but if, if you engage in any way with the uh, more liberal or higher academic levels of Christianity, you will see again and again and again this belief that the cross was a tragedy, Everything was looking good, and then, oops, this happened. And then after the fact, the disciples wrote it as though it were the plan, kind of like drawing the bullseye after you take the shot. That, that's very commonly understood. Most Muslims understand that Jesus was not crucified, that either Judas was put in his place or only appeared dead. And so in the world around us, there's a lot of people who think the cross was a mistake, an accident, a tragedy. And texts like this make it unmistakably clear, no. Not only did Jesus intend this, but the Old Testament scriptures intended this. This has been planned from the beginning. This has been planned from the beginning. And, and we understand, we, we sang about it this morning, the glory of the cross, that the, the God's act of salvation, the great act of God saving his people, took place when Jesus on the cross died. He took our punishment for our sin. He bore the wrath of God. He was shamefully treated. And we can be forgiven as a result of it. We understand the cross not as an accident, but the high point of history. And so Luke is emphasizing this for Theophilus and for us, that this was no accident. It was predicted and it was planned. Just read one text. You can read Isaiah 53 at your own leisure. But listen to the prediction of Zechariah 12. Love this. This is speaking about Israel in the latter days. I will pour out on the house of David... And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And notice two things there. First, the interplay. Is the one they're looking on God or someone distinct from God? And the answer is yes. Now, we now, with Trinitarian theology, understand that Jesus is God, and yet he is distinct from the Father. And so God says, they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. And here's pierced. Centuries before the Romans came along with crucifixion, the prophet Zechariah and other passages in the Old Testament predict the Messiah's sufferings with great detail and specificity. What Jesus is saying is every element of what he is about to endure was predicted in the Old Testament. It's there. This is part of the plan. And Jesus has embraced this plan and resolutely headed to Jerusalem. So, so why is he so insistent on teaching this to his disciples? I mean, we've seen the repetition. Let this sink into your head. I can think of at least two reasons. One, Jesus tells the 12 to prepare them. Jesus tells the 12 to prepare them. A lot of what Jesus is doing as he approaches Jerusalem is preparing his disciples for what is about to happen, what is about to come. They are weak, they're frail, they sort of get things. And Jesus, as a good shepherd, is preparing his disciples. Turn, turn, to, chapter, turn to chapter 22. In Luke 
22, starting in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan has requested to test or tempt Peter. And Jesus, as a good shepherd, says this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is concerned that his disciples don't ultimately shrink back, that their faith doesn't ultimately collapse when the crucifixion happens. And we know they're going to scatter. We know they're going to be confused. They're not waiting in the upper room saying, I can't wait until Sunday. They don't get it. But their faith doesn't shatter. So Jesus tells them these things repeatedly as a means of shepherding them and preparing for what's coming. But more importantly, he tells them these things that they might remember, that they might remember. Turn to chapter 24. A lot of what Jesus tells the disciples goes over their head when they first hear it, but all the Gospels recount this notion that later, later they remembered and understood. Later they got it. Most specifically after they received the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And here... One of the angels at the tomb chides them about this. 24, 4 through 8. While they're perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They're at the tomb. It's empty. They still don't get it. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. So Jesus is not failing in what he's trying to do here. You might get the impression he's trying to do something, and oops, he isn't clear enough, they don't get it. No, he's preparing them for what to come, but most importantly, he's teaching them things so after the fact they can remember, that's right, he did say that. He's telling them these things that they might remember them. Remember them. That's the first thing. The cross was predicted and planned. Secondly, Jesus perfectly models that which he calls us to. Jesus perfectly models that which he calls us to. Now, I know it's, it's difficult to hear Jesus' call to self-denial his call to suffering, his call to renounce all that you have, to pick up your cross. But one of the things that is helpful is unlike some leaders who call their slaves and servants to things they are unwilling to do themselves, there's nothing that Jesus is calling you or me to. He does not perfectly model, right? So he's demanded of his disciples, renounce everything you have. Have no greater loyalty. Um, become poor. Be willing to become poor. Give to others. And we see Jesus, he was rich and became poor. He was rich and became poor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And I'd encourage you, if God is calling you to a season of suffering, trial, take comfort in the fact that your Savior has trod those steps ahead of you, and it equips him as a faithful and high priest to be sympathetic and to intercede for you, that you get to share in one sense in the sufferings of Christ. This is the plan. It's always the plan. It's the plan for the Messiah. It's the plan for God's people. 
We sang about this this morning. With I asked the Lord. I, I just, it's so counter Western Christian culture to hear these things. We live in a culture where normally people think becoming a Christian makes life easier. And, and Jesus perfectly models this. Yes, there is glory. Yes, there is exaltation. But before the crown, there must be a cross. Before the crown, there must be a cross. He was rich and he became poor. And, and in that sense, think of the comparison between Jesus and you and me. We may feel that our rights are being taken advantage of, that we're mistreated, that we're suffering. But there's no amount of comparison of what we deserve and what we get to what he deserved and what he willingly embraced. He is the Lord of glory. Angels around the throne of God cover their eyes, cover their feet, fly with their wings and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this one who deserves all glory, all honor, all praise, set that aside and was spit upon and mocked and he willingly embraced it. So take comfort in your trials that your Savior has gone ahead of you in suffering. He was rich, he became poor. He humbled himself and suffered. Now turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now one of the encouraging things is after Pentecost, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, these thick-headed disciples get it. And so Peter, who would oppose Jesus and say, far be it that this will happen to you, and Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Peter gets it in spades. And in 1 Peter I actually start in chapter 1. He's writing to people suffering trials. I'll start in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, there's the glory. There's the exaltation. A inheritance and treasure that cannot rot be taken from you, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to reveal the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. There's glory ahead of you, but right now, there are trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now turn to chapter 2. And, and Peter is going to begin giving instructions to servants and slaves. And even though it starts specifically with them, it's going to broaden out. You'll notice the shift when he goes from servants to anyone. And we get this principle of suffering and God's purpose in it. And here's what I want you to, to get. God isn't a sadist. He had a purpose in Jesus' sufferings. And he has a purpose in yours and mine. And Peter's going to focus on that and what God accomplished through Jesus' sufferings. We're not naturally inclined towards suffering. We want to move away from it, towards comfort, towards safety. So here we go. Servants, be subject to your masters, verse 18, with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of sorrows, one or anyone endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So what Peter is taking in verse 19 is a general truism for all people and applying it to the specific circumstance of a slave. But I want you to get that. It's a gracious thing 
When mindful of God, anyone endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Don't miss verse 21. For to this, what? Suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called. That's all Christians, as I understand this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The Greek word literally means the stencil that the, the, the little children would learn their letters by, tracing around the edge. Jesus' life is a pattern that we're tracing our life around. And then Peter's going to focus on the so what of Jesus' suffering. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And the point here is this, none of us can make that claim. In other words, Jesus' suffering was far, 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 there aren't enough fars more unjust than anything that can happen to you or me. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We've seen in Luke's gospel, Jesus came to bring fire upon the earth, and he can't wait for it to come but he's waiting on his father's timetable for justice. And what did God accomplish? What did God do through Jesus' sufferings? Was it meaningless, pointless? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's the point. God's greatest works of redemption are always done through the willing suffering of his servants. Seen most clearly in the willing suffering and death of Jesus Christ. This is how God saved his people. And as you read through Acts in the New Testament, the same theme is brought out. So that when the Apostle Paul gets converted, Annas who's confused by this, the Lord says, go to him, for I will show how much someone must suffer for my sake. And the Apostle Paul brags about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 12. There is proof of apostleship, there's the word. So, So here's the point. He humbled himself and suffered, and through that, God accomplished the greatest act of grace and redemption in human history, nay, the history of existence, And the same thing holds true for you and for me. People are not impressed when the the football player scores the touchdown and then points his finger up to God. People aren't impressed when someone in a Cadillac says, praise the Lord. What What makes people take note is when people in intense suffering, people who've lost everything, give God glory. That that makes the world take note. And God, you, you, you can read church history The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God has a purpose in suffering, and it's a good purpose. It refines us, purifies our faith, and it brings salvation to the world just as it did through Jesus. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. and By his stripes we are healed. Which ultimately, point, next point, exemplifies what he said in verse 14, thus bringing, I think, this section of Luke to a close and beginning the next, that all who humble themselves will be exalted. See, you got the choice of do you want honor and glory now or later? Do you want to be exalted by God or do you want to exalt yourself? 
Jesus chose to humble himself, and God exalted him. In Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Why? Because he humbled himself to the point of obedience, even death on a cross. So Jesus models what he calls us to. And in Jesus' sufferings, we can see the good that is done. Remind yourself of that next time you're in a difficult place. It's, your suffering is not meaningless. God is using it. He will accomplish good purposes for it. Your Savior has gone ahead of you. He can sympathize with you. Finally, we can learn the disciples' failure to understand this principle resulted in their failure to understand Jesus and suffer with him. The disciples' failure to see God's purpose, his disciples' failure to understand this principle resulted in their failure to understand Jesus and suffer with him. Now, they understood that he was the Son of God, and they understood in some sense he was the Savior. They understood he spoke for God, but they did not understand a suffering, crucified Messiah. And consequently, when he was crucified, when the Romans took him, they scattered, they broke. There's a brief moment where they're ready to fight, and Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. When Jesus said, no, no, we're not fighting, they, they scattered. And in Luke's gospel, we'll see in the coming months, Peter denied Jesus three times. Why? Why did these disciples fail to suffer with Jesus? Because they didn't get this principle. If you and I don't understand that glory comes through humility, that, that God exalts the humble, we will try to exalt ourselves. We will try to advance our own cause. We'll, we'll, we will look for honor, in which we're modeling the Pharisees. Remember them trying to figure out which seat at the table they could sit at? Now, there's this universal principle of God honoring and exalting the humble and casting down the proud. And the disciples, they got this somewhat, but not enough to stand with Jesus when he was arrested. They failed to see, here's your first point, God's good purpose in his humiliation and suffering. They failed to see God's good purpose in his humiliation and suffering. Now Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew does, that when, on another occasion when Jesus plainly spoke about his death, this is what Peter said. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And it's very human to want to avoid suffering. If you're in suffering, you'll have no problem finding friends. We'll tell you, get out of there. Don't put up with that. Things, their minds are on the things of man. The apostles, the 12, did not see anything good coming from that. After all, weren't all the patriarchs rich, wealthy, comfortable men? What good can come from suffering? Now, they would get it. We, we've seen in 1 Peter, Peter got it. But they failed to see anything good in it. And I'm going to suggest that if, if you don't look to Jesus in the cross and meditate on this, if you don't see good things that can come through suffering, you will reject them as well. You'll run from them. And not that we're to be del delighted by them. They're, they're difficult, but we, we can trust that God is doing something good in them. God has good purposes in our trials and in our suffering. They failed to see God's good purpose 
Thus they refused to suffer with him. Thus they refused to suffer with him. Now, starting the book of Acts, everything's changed. And, and they stand up boldly, and they're arrested, and they're beaten. And we see the change in these men, the change wrought by the Holy Spirit coming upon them, the change wrought from being after the cross, and the penny drops, and it all comes together. And it becomes clear these men will become willing to suffer for Christ. But here in Luke's gospel, they're going to scatter, they're going to abandon him, Peter's going to deny him, all because they failed to see anything good in his suffering. So Jesus announces to them, here's my plan, here's my purpose, here's my program, and it's going to involve suffering, humiliation, and death. And they just don't get it. And that sets up their failure in the coming chapters of Luke, what Luke's doing here is setting up what we're about to see in the next few chapters. Jerusalem is just over the next hill. Jericho is right here. The cross is closer before us than it's ever been. And Luke wants us to stop and see our Savior's resolute, determined acceptance of humiliation, the promise of his exaltation, and the disciples' failure to grasp these things, setting up and explaining why they desert Christ. It's important for us to see this. It's important for us to grasp this principle. Let it sink into our heads. God exalts the humble. God works his greatest works of salvation through suffering. And as 1 Peter said, to this we have been called since Christ left us an example that we might follow in his footsteps. Let us not turn from the cross and embrace it. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to sing our closing song about the deep, deep love of Jesus.